What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Tom Crishlow, a digital strategy consultant in Brooklyn by way of the Google Creative Lab, born in Britain, living in America. We're going to talk about independent today because Tom is working on a book called The Strategic Independence. So we'll get insight into his thoughts on what he's writing about. Tom, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. What made you go independent? It's a great question. So I was working at Google at the time, this is about 2014. This is probably familiar for a few people inside big companies. I bounced around departments there and hadn't really found my spot. Um, and so there wasn't really a single trigger moment that made me leave, but just a general sense that I wasn't doing work that was satisfying. I wasn't doing work that was useful there. And I thought, why not make the leap? Why not go out solo? You know, my background before Google was working in SEO. And it's quite common in SEO to be a freelancer. You know, that industry, certainly a few years ago, was kind of uh, not very formalized. So there's a lot of agencies, a lot of freelancers, pretty common for SEO folks to kind of pick up, uh, you know, one-off freelance gigs. And I thought, I I can probably do that. I can probably figure that out. And so it was kind of a general sense of, you know, maybe now at the right time, maybe I'll dip my toe in it. Maybe it's a bridge to getting a a job or maybe it's a a full-time thing. I'm not sure. But I know I had to get out of Google. I knew that was like a, a sensible leap. So I left. Hmm. The idea of bouncing around, I, I talk about bouncing around a lot. I feel like I bounce around a lot during my days and I've bounced around a few different companies. The things I've done for the longest term or the longest time, doing martial arts, running a hip hop magazine and what I'm doing now, but I did bounce around a lot. Do you think that's a really useful thing to identify in oneself as possibly a sign that you need to go independent? Yeah. I mean, I think at least that a change is imminent or, or useful. You know, I think if you're not settled in a place, if you don't feel like you have at least some measure of competence or stability or enjoyment from what you're doing, it's probably a sign that something should change, whether that's a different role inside the same company, whether it's going independent, whether it's getting a new job, whether it's, you know, shaking up your life, shaking up your routine, your hobbies. You know, I think some people feel like their default state is bouncing around. And I think that's fine. I think it's good to to be curious about the world and kind of jump from one thing to the next. But I think you need you need some kind of bedrock of, of stability or, or, or some kind of foundation of, of uh, confidence or happiness, I think, uh, mm-hmm. through that. And I think if your entire life, is, if everything in your life is bouncing around, that's probably not a good place to be, but you know, different strokes for different folks, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Have you bounced around in life a lot or was it just through this Google Creative Lab experience? I probably bounced around a fair amount. I mean, I, I, I moved from London to New York having never visited New York before. I, I was working for my brother's agency, a company called Distilled at the time and he said you want to go open a new york office for me and i said sure having having never been to the city so i feel like my life has been defined a little bit by some kind of uh leaps into the unknown but i'd also say that you know i'm probably a little bit of a homebody at the same time i quite like my routines i quite like some measure of stability and pace so i think it's probably a little bit of both if that if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and when you set up as independent how clear were you on what you wanted to do uh, not at all clear. <laughs> um, so I, I had a career in SEO, done that for a long time. Went to go work at Google for two years where I did nothing to do with SEO. I was working at the Creative Lab for a bit and then I was working in uh, product marketing for a bit, and some innovation projects, um, kind of doing all kinds of weird and wonderful things. And I left Google and I had this grand idea that I'd be running design sprints for clients and I would be doing this kind of you know strategic insights and et cetera, et cetera. But the truth was that the very first client I got was an SEO audit. Um, it was kind of the, the bread and butter. It was what I knew, what people knew me for. And so I kind of did that and felt quite confused about it because 
it was it was you know quite it was pretty well paid work and it was a good gig to have straight off straight out coming out of Google, but it was the work that I'd been doing you know two three four years ago and it felt a little bit like a step backwards and so I think that was a confusing time for me to try and balance you know if I can pay the bills but doing it with the kind of work that doesn't excite me anymore is that is that worthwhile is that what I want and so that that introspective process went on I'd say for a good kind of eighteen months I think you know that first period going out on my own. Until I started to find a couple of clients where I felt like, oh, this isn't this isn't just the stuff I was doing before. This does feel a bit more strategic. I'm getting a little bit higher up the food chain. I'm getting involved in bigger projects um, and doing more creative things. And then that kind of that just kept going until I feel like I've I've kind of hit my stride. I think in the last couple of years, uh, fingers crossed, touch touch wood. Um, I feel like I've had some really fun projects. I'm, I'm digging the work that I do, and that's that's been a nice realization to feel like I've I've gotten somewhere that I want to be. But equally, it wasn't you know recognizing that it didn't happen overnight. Did you have savings and or another income to rely on through the first year or two? I had some savings. I didn't have another income. Um, in fact, my wife at the time, we just launched uh, an art business together. We had designs to be a kind of startup and that it would have you know, the re- you know, revenue potential and so on. And it's earned a little bit of money over the years, but um, it hasn't really become a, a full quote-unquote business, or at least not a, a kind of a, a meaningful part of our revenue. So actually, I'd say kind of the opposite. Uh, we were running an art business and I was trying to get this freelance work off the ground. So yeah, I had a little bit of savings, but not not so much that I felt like it was a, a an easy ride. Okay. And how did you describe what you were doing when you first started? Um, I didn't, I think. I kind of, <laughs> I think I described I think I described it about 15 different ways. You know, I'd I'd have these I'd have some awkward conversations because clients would come to me say, hey, we'd like an SEO audit. And I'd say, oh, I don't really do that. I do digital strategy. I do uh, you know creative strategy. And they'd say, oh, what's that? And I'd say, uh, maybe it's SEO audits. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'd do some work together and then we'd figure it out. So it was kind of, I mean, it was a long quest, I think, to really uncover an identity for myself and to really articulate the, the work that I do. I actually wrote a blog post about this called, called I Consultant, you know, off the, off the I Robot um, uh, kind of formulation, that movie title. But really about the idea that it, it's only been... I've, I've called myself a consultant pretty much since I stepped out of Google, but it's only in the last year or two that I felt comfortable actually in, in my own skin using that phrase, using that term, trying to understand what that means. But also that that entire quest has been pretty much just for me. I don't think clients actually care what I call myself or how I describe the work that I do. They just have a problem they need fixing. And if I'm the right solution for that, then great. And so all of that, I think it's a common, it's a common idea, I think, when you step out on your own. One of the first things you worry about is kind of quote-unquote positioning. Yeah. You want to have like a position in the market. You want to have a clear idea of the work you do, a clear idea of who you are, a clear idea of how you work. And the reality is you have no idea on any of those things. But also, the good news is that I think clients don't really care. It's just uh, most of it is for you, which doesn't mean it's not important. But, but it's, it's worthwhile, I think, to understand that that's largely a kind of introspective um, project. It's, a, it's an exercise in looking in the mirror, not an exercise in, in kind of broadcasting to the world. Yeah, I think it's useful to have that higher order perspective on what you're trying to do, but you still need to use the keywords that people are looking for. So SEO audit or qualitative research or brand strategy or customer journey. And if you're too fancy to use the keywords that people are going to use in conversation, I'm not even talking about search or or websites at all, then you are going to risk confusing the potential client. Totally. Yes, that was exactly what happened to me where I, I would confuse people by trying to use these kind of abstract high-level terms when, when they had a concrete thing that they needed to, need to work on. Hmm. How do you talk about what you do now? <laughs> the same. Uh, uh, SEO so, audits. 
Yeah, I see what it's. Um, so, so the way I talk about it is I do digital strategy for any client that produces content at scale, um, and that could be the New York Times, could be a media company. Um, I spent a lot of time working with media companies over the past few years, uh, but it could also be a company like Gartner, which you wouldn't necessarily think of as a media company, but they produce a ton of content and have a whole kind of content operation. And the work that I do for them tends to to span everything from SEO, content strategy, um, uh, innovation, product design, with a with a strong focus on the people. So a lot of the work that I do, I, I position myself as a as an independent consultant that's different than an agency. And almost every long term client I have, I'm in their office one, two, three days a week for an extended period of time, <clears throat> which allows me to both understand their problems better, but also get involved in the messy side of like building teams, building processes, sometimes even hiring people, and sometimes even kind of dotted line management of people. Because I think that you know, strategy is all well on its own in a vacuum. PowerPoints are nice. I do a lot of those. But where the rubber meets the road is in processes and people. You know, nothing quote unquote gets done without processes and people. And so that's where I try and focus my time and energy. And I think that's a little bit, that's a, I think that's a selling point versus, um, uh, versus a kind of an agency engagement, which, which I think agencies often struggle to get that level of access. They struggle to get that level of involvement inside the client's organization. So that's kind of, that's a, that, that's a <laughs> as you can tell, I do a lot of talking. Um, I don't have a one-line statement for the work that I do, but that's, that's how I position myself. That's how I talk about it. You know, that's, that's how clients come to me and we figure it out from there. Right. And there are probably people listening who don't know what SEO is. It's search engine optimization. Just want to put that out there. Why do you use the word consultant? You mentioned before that the word agency isn't appropriate, but also the word freelancer might have popped into your mind. Why consultants? I think, again, it's it's an introspective process. But for me, it does a few things. One, it empowers me. I think uh, the term freelancer can sometimes kind of imply this idea that you're getting pushed around by clients, that the clients are the boss. And I would much rather have a mental model of me pushing clients around. That's obviously not always true. Um, and the clients are the ones paying the bills. But I'd like a, a kind of a, a toe-to-toe, you know, kind of equals relationship with clients. And so in my mind, consultant, you know, kind of, kind of suggests that a little bit more strongly than something like freelancer. And the second thing is just, uh, you know, when, when I think of the word consultant, you know, I instantly think of like a McKinsey or a Bain consulting, you know, these, these kind of big management consultant types and what, you know, they have all kinds of troubles in in that industry and and there's all kinds of uh, problematic things involved with them. But the, the, the raw essence of what they're trying to do is they're trying to change the client. So, um, that's what I aspire to is the kind of work where, I'm not just producing output. I'm not just working on a website or a landing page or a a series of content or even like an SEO audit. I'm actually trying to change the organization in some way, whether that is by changing their processes, changing the way they think, um, uh, actually, you know, hiring new people in and building teams. Um, That's for me where that that term comes from. And that's what that term implies. I'm sure it means different things to different people. But that's kind of the that was a struggle that I went on was trying to trying to use the word consultant, think of myself in that way. And for that to be a thing that is genuine rather than just a thing that I made up, um, you know, trying to feel comfortable in my own skill and then feeling like I've actually done some of those projects. That was a, that was a, a journey. Okay. Um, Take us back to the first year. Did you set or write down financial goals for how much you wanted to earn? And then how did you go about getting business? I did not set down financial goals about what I needed to earn. Um, I think the biggest milestone for me was when I made in my first year more than I'd made working at Google. That was a really kind of satisfying kind of watermark 
that's a little bit more than I need to live probably. You know, I was living comfortably on my Google salary. They pay reasonably well. But, but passing that number felt like a really good psychological milestone. So it was, but I hadn't really done too much planning around it. You know, I think, I think planning's tough when you first set out on your own. I actually posted some, um, like the numbers are removed, but I posted some charts showing the, the evolution of client work over the last four years on my, on my blog. And you can see the, that those first 12 months in particular are very spiky. There's a couple of months where I'm doing a bunch of work, a couple of months when I have literally zero work, a couple of months where it's like quite a quiet. And then towards the end of that first 12 months, it starts to pick up with a couple of clients that go on to be clients I work with for, for you know, two plus years. So that kind of that emerges the stability, but that stability didn't emerge until right at the end of that first year, I think. So, so that's, that was, you know, I think, I think goal setting in that process can, can be hard because you don't have enough signal yet. You don't have enough experience to understand what's normal. You know, mm-hmm. you pick up a well-paying client, but then they go away next month and you're like, well, was that the norm? Was that an exception? How often am I going to get these? And there's a lot of anxiety around that, um, which is not to say, by the way, I'm encouraging financial irresponsibility by just, you know, le- leaping out on your own and seeing what happens, um, even though that's kind of what I did. You know, I think goal setting can also be, be hard, but that's how I did it. Now, the second part of your question was, was uh, how I find clients. Hmm. Uh, I would say 95% of the clients that I work with come through word of mouth and referrals. They come through my network, which is not necessarily the case for other independents that, that I talk to, other freelancers and consultants. You know, some of them have, generate a lot of work through their podcasts, uh, like this. I'm sure you get work through, through Sweathead. Some of them generate work from previous client engagements, which, which for one reason or another, I'm, I'm not quite sure why, but is not a particular way that I get new clients. But pretty much every client I get is a, is a warm introduction from somebody I already know. Or somebody who knew me from the SEO industry kind of way back in the day. Those are kind of mm. the two primary ways that, that I get clients. So how, how important do you feel? It's, I know it's going to be difficult to give anything that resembles a scientific answer to this, but how important do you feel it was to have had a large online presence or a significant online presence in a very tight growing industry and then to also have had the Google name next to you? as far as that initial success, because that first year of revenue to be very similar to your salary at Google or more than it, that sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, yes, I feel very fortunate and lucky to have, to have done that. I think that was, that was, um, it went better than I'd expected, which, which is nice. I think both of those things were, were, I think honestly, both of those things were pretty important. I think, I don't know to what degree exactly being online specifically was important. But having a network of people that knew who I was in the industry, I think, was super important. I think, um, I think that would really be one of the one of the only things that I think would be a deal breaker for going independent. Would be if you don't already have a network, don't do it. I, I just think it would be phenomenally hard to get any kind of client work in any kind of reasonable time frame if you don't already have a network around you of some sort. I think I was very lucky to have to have kind of stumbled into the SEO industry in the early days, that industry. And, and, you know, I spoke at a bunch of conferences in the SEO industry and so on. So a lot of people knew who I was, which I think I was very fortunate around. So I think that was super helpful. At the time, I really dismissed the Google name because I, because my time at Google had left a slightly sour taste in my mouth because I hadn't, I never really found my fit there. I kind of tried not to use the word Google anywhere. Um, but if I think back now with a slightly more clear mind and clear eyes, and if I'm a bit more honest with myself, a lot of those client conversations in the early days and even now today still reference that name Google. You know, there's kind of a lot it around. Like, um, uh, I, I notice it in particular when I've already started working with a client. So I've got my kind of point of contact that, that signs the contract and brings me in. And then when they introduce me to their team, 
that's kind of a really interesting psychological moment. And I'd say nine times out of 10, when they're introducing me to their team, they use the word Google. They, they, they drop it in somewhere in that, that intro. So I think it is important. I wish it wasn't. You know, I, I wish it didn't really make a difference. Uh, and I don't think it has to be Google, by the way. But I, think, I do think that humans look for, to put people in boxes. They look for labels. And I think easy, safe labels like working at Google, working at Facebook, et cetera, those, those things that are just kind of easy to describe and easy to drop in that, that people feel like everyone's going to know what that means, um, I, think they, I think they help. Hmm. Let's chat activities and pricing. In that first year, did you ever sit down and write down the types of projects that you would do, the activities that you would do and put prices against them? No. I think I made it up as I went along. And right. I think that a lot of it, I, so I'd actually been, I was quite comfortable with pricing because having run the, the New York office for Distilled, my brother's agency, before Google, I'd done a lot of sales and I, I'd uh, both done client delivery, client sales, client management, and I'd done kind of, you know, end-to-end process. And so I was quite comfortable with the idea that pricing is much more defined by the client than it is by you. And that, you know, you should be pricing accordingly to, to you know, kind of what you think you can get away with or what you think is appropriate rather than defined by, well, I do an SEO audit for 5K or for 10K or whatever it might be. You know, it's like setting a price doesn't make a lot of sense when, when the market is telling you what it wants. And so I've always tried to price that way and, and be a bit more flexible. These days, I do a lot more pricing on a day rate rather than a project rate. And so I kind of have a, a small range in what I'm okay with on a, day, on a day rate. And then I kind of price everything according to that, which I don't think if you read some of the kind of commonly accepted wisdom in the kind of freelance consulting world of freelance uh, you know, blogs and forums and so on, people tend to frown on that idea of charging for time. But I find it's just a very, very simple model and it aligns pretty well with the work that I do. So I've been lucky enough to kind of make that work. Mm. Yeah, I don't charge for time, but I do have it in the back of my mind as a way just to make, just to keep myself honest with what I'm trying to do. Do you or did you ever have minimum budgets that you would work for? Yes, but I pro- I've probably broken them a few times. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think when you, there's a, at least for me personally, no matter how confident I am and no matter how safe I feel with having runway in the bank, when I hit a lull in, in client work, there's a, there's a kind of existential terror that's, that sits in. And when you're in the middle of that existential terror and a client comes to you and says, well, we just want this little bitty piece of work and we haven't really got the budget, but maybe you could just do it. We'll start next week. It takes all of the force in the world, I think, to say no to that. So I think what I try and do and what I remind myself to try and do is if you're going to take a rate which is lower than what you want, try and scope it super tightly and don't let it become an ongoing contract. I think getting locked into you know, still working with a client one, two years later when you're on a rate that wasn't a good rate at the time, that is a bad position to be in, I think. Um, I think you're kind of setting yourself up for, for failure that way. So um, I'd, take a, I'd take a short piece of work or a clearly defined project below my, my, my rate that I want, but I wouldn't take an ongoing project. Okay. And did you have much debate with yourself about whether you would only do retainer-based work or whether you'd only do project work or a mix of two? Um, no, the, I, I did a whole mix to start with, and I still do some project work, but I found that retained work is A, more enjoyable because I get really embedded with the client's organization. I get to understand that business very deeply, and, and um, I feel like I can be more effective. So I, I enjoy retained work more, and the, the economics of it just makes so much more sense. You, know, you have to sell so many one-off projects, and you have to make sure there are no gaps in between them. 
to match the equivalent of retained revenue. That retained revenue just just makes so much more sense to to chase and hunt and, and work on. But in the early days, I did whatever. I just I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. I was still stuck in this kind of am I a digital strategist, a creative strategist, or am I an SEO guy? And so I kind of took on all kinds of different work in all kinds of different guises. And I think the that kind of model of becoming embedded with the client was a thing that emerged from the work that I was doing, rather than a thing that I kind of tried to force and, and, and make happen. Mm. How do you deal with the existential angst and the seasonality of the work? So the the best advice I ever got, uh, a friend of mine, Dave Dawson, who's been a freelance web designer, web developer for 10 plus years now, he ran a co-working space in Brooklyn and I, I sat next to him for, for about a year. And you know, I, I was talking to him about, you know, when you get slow and when you get busy and, and the, the best advice he gave me was when he said, when you don't have any client work to do and you're, you're quiet, and it's a Tuesday afternoon, just grab your bike and go for a bike ride because that is the point. And, you know, you, you obviously have to do something to try and drum up some leads. You have to do some work to, to keep that engine going and so on. You can't just ignore it. But you have to trust the process and you have to take advantage of the slow times because that's why we're doing this, um, mm. is to have that you be in control of your own time, be in control of your own schedule. Uh, and I think that was really useful to me. Whenever I find myself in that slump, when I'm like, oh, I haven't got enough work, I'm, I'm, I need to try to find more clients, um, I do two things. One, I blog because that always generates more work somehow, uh, whether it's quickly or, or, or over the long term. And then I, and then I go exercise, uh, I grab my bike, I go for a swim, I go do Kung Fu, um, one of those things. Hmm. So when people go independent, I think it's a little bit like having a, a baby for the first time where you can get trapped by this bizarre form of materialism. So with a baby, you know, you need like 20 pieces of equipment and then you have a baby, you're like, no, they just need somewhere to sleep. They need to eat and uh, we need to be able to wash them and that's and clean them. And that's kind of, that's kind of it. And I think a lot of people who go independent, they think, oh, I need a virtual assistant. I need a co-working space. I need a business card. I need a website. I need to build an email list, so on and so forth. What do you think is the minimum that an independent needs to stand themselves in good stead? A laptop and a website. I don't think you need any more than that. I think, mm. uh, I, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of people try and over-engineer the things they need. I run my business at a 99.5% profit margin because <laughs> um, my costs are almost literally zero. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't think I, maybe I have one or two software subscriptions and, you know, I subscribe to Stratechery for 10 bucks a month and that goes into my business uh, account and that's about it. Like uh, I, I don't have a co-working space. Um, I don't have business cards. Um, I don't have a virtual assistant. I think you're right. I think, People try and over-engineer what they need and they try and... I think it's the same with like productivity tools. People imagine that they're not productive because of the tools. They imagine they're not being effective in consulting work because of the tools. And the truth is that it's, it's much more introspective than that. The, the problems are a little bit more deep-seated than just which to-do list app you use or whether you're managing your lead flow and some kind of CRM. I think you've got to look at the root cause a bit more clearly. Mm-hmm. What are the pros and cons for an independent in using a co-working space? I, it's a personal choice. I think you've got to you've got to understand where you do your work best and what environment you need. For me personally, because of so much so much of the work I do is on site with clients, um, and I'm lucky. You know, in New York, uh, clients are on my doorstep, so I don't do too much travel, but I'm in clients' offices um, a lot. And so on the days that I'm not, I find I can work from home fine. If I was working from home five days a week, I think I go a little bit more stir crazy, and maybe I need a co-working space. Um, that was what I had a couple of years ago when I was working with my friend Dave. I had a co-working space in Brooklyn, just down the road, and it was it was lovely. I loved the idea of having a desk, having an office, 
but I just couldn't justify the cost. I wasn't there enough. I was I was on site with clients. But I think you know, I think people imagine sometimes they do their best work sat in silence or at a co-working space. But I think you've actually got to question your own assumptions a little bit and just try and listen to your, to your body and to your mind and say, where am I actually doing my best work? Um, and what do we actually need? You know, I find that some of my best, some of my best, best work has come like sat in a super busy Starbucks in Times Square when I'm on deadline or I'm just like in flow and I'm like, oh, I got to get this thing done. Uh, and so I just sit down and get it done. Um, and, and, and that, that I think is an eye-opening experience to understand that your environment affects you, sure, but that your environment, quote unquote, is so much more than just where you are. It's your state of mind. It's it's how happy you are. It's how much sleep you're getting. It's how much exercise you're getting. And I think those are things that I, I try and focus on managing those things before I focus on managing, like you know, the cactus at the end of my desk and a and a co-working space that I have full time with mine and and so on and so forth. So, mm-hmm. but I think that's also a very personal thing. I think I think people are different, and people I think you just got to listen listen to yourself uh, and try and understand what you need. Um, the, the one thing I will say for especially for folks in uh, in New York and and uh, San Fran. There's a company called Spacious, which does, uh, they do co-working spaces that basically take over restaurants that aren't open during the day and turn them into co-working spaces. And they have one of the best like drop-in day rates that, are, that I've seen. It's like 20 bucks for a day and you just pay day by day. And they have a bunch of locations around New York and San Fran. And I've really enjoyed using that when I need it. That prevents me from having to think about, oh man, should I spend you know 600 bucks a month for a, for a co-working space, a dedicated desk somewhere? That feels like a big expense, but shelling out 20 bucks occasionally to just drop in and sit down and work uh, is uh, a lot easier to start making my mind. Mm, yeah, I've used Spacious as well. And I've, I've toyed with a few different co-working spaces. I was intrigued by it. New York's just crazy expensive as right. well. And then I, I was like, hang on, where do I do my work? And similar to you, a lot of it is on site. And then when I'm not on site, what kind of work do I need to do? And how do I build a day that is mostly about doing that work when I do it? Because five to six hours of doing good, deep work for me is probably two days of work in an office. Right. And, and so I just canceled a lot of stuff. I don't like commuting. I don't like if I catch a train back and forth, that's an hour, an hour and a half gone. You know, so I, I just try to work pretty local. And so I had to go through that journey as well. And I've seen other people get much more intrigued by the materialist nature of freelancing because there are so many companies out there selling people's stuff. Uh, And then one thing that I think is interesting about people who go independent is to what degree they push most decisions through the idea of staying independent. So for example, for some people, having a retained client could feel like they're breeding a dependence. Mm -hmm. Do Do you ever go through that mind riddle? All the time. Um, I think it's very natural. I think everyone does it. The best antidote to that is to always try and have at least two clients at any one time. I think if you if you get stuck with one client, it can feel like you're just kind of a, a lesser employee. You're kind of like, well, I'm not even working full-time. I'm only getting a few days. I'm an outsider. I'm one foot in, one foot out, but they're my only source of revenue. Why don't I just take a job? I think can be can be a common thing to think. For me, I think the trade-offs are... It, so there's a couple of things I think that have been useful for me. One is um, recognizing why I'm doing it in the first place and, and, and embracing the benefits of uh, you know being my own boss, being flexible in my schedule, and you know, getting to work on a, on a variety of different clients and projects. So that's kind of been one way that I've like just reminding myself the, the good things that come from it and why I'm out independent in the first place. And then the second thing is, um, it's actually part of why I'm writing a book, is 
I'm, I'm forcing myself to treat consulting and independent consulting as a kind of a, almost like an academic discipline that I want to be interested in and to understand better and to get better at. And that almost gives me some sense of like, you know, quote, unquote, like, uh, like career progression or, um, uh, you know, I can feel like I'm evolving and learning and growing as an independent, which I think is, is another problem that people suffer with is when they feel like they're outside of the machinery of job titles and corporate ladder it can be hard sometimes to feel like you're actually learning and growing and getting better at the work that you do, especially when you don't really get any feedback. You know, you don't have peers to bounce things off and to review the work you do. And so that's been another thing for me is just to remind myself that I am growing and that this year is different than last year and, and, and that there is an evolution and, and personal growth there. That's all, that's all been useful. Um, but I'm also not dogmatic about it. I think if the right job came up, I'd, I'd take it. You know, I don't, necessarily see this as being forever if it ends up being forever then great but i think that it's about making the right choices for the right reasons i think um, which is easier said than done but you know trying to make sure that you're, you're weighing the pros and cons and doing the thing that you want to do that gives you what you need but I, but I like that i like the idea of doing the job and studying it at the same time because that should help you improve and as you're doing you get things to publish that attracts new people in you get to test new ideas and it becomes uh, you know, and I know you said you're open to a job, but it becomes this sort of life's work that just this beautiful virtuous cycle. You do the work, you study it, you improve it, you implement it, you do it all over again. It's that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm uh, very inspired by you and all the stuff you do at Sweathead. I mean, you've you put you, you publish at a higher output than I do, and I think you've even more deliberately than I have made it your life's work um, in a way that that I think is really empowering. And, you know, I think sometimes when I publish stuff, it feels a little bit introspective. And I think you've done a good job of, of actually crossing that line to be a bit more about like explicitly helping other people get better at this stuff, which which sometimes I think I need to do a, do a better job of. But but that model, like you said, it just, it just works. It feels good. It, it makes sense. What did you learn about contracts in the first couple of years? You know, are there... Are there terms that you added or changed to make the contracts better for you? Um, there, are, there are two things that I, that I found that were just incredibly useful for me. One was um, the company called August. Um, their website is just aug.co. And they're a, they're an org design consultancy. But they had, they, they've, I think they've deprioritized it a little bit now. But when they first launched, they had this model of an open business plan. And they had a Google Drive folder that they just made public with all of their company documents that were all open source that you could all use for your own uh, purposes. And they just had a really kind of solid consulting contract in there. And so I just stole it. Uh, well, I stole it. It was free to steal, <laughs> but I, but I but I took it and I used it. Um, and and um, I, that was really useful to be like, oh, this is a contract that, that is for the kind of work that I do, and has been vetted by a lawyer, and I can just grab it and use it and repurpose it. And I'm still using that today. So that was that was really helpful to kind of sidestep some of that some of that existential uh, uncertainty around around contracts. But then the second thing that was really useful um, there's a book called Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss, um, and it's a it's it's at times, it veers over the line for me into that like rah rah. You two can earn a million dollars just following my simple system. Um, but if you can get past that, there are there are a bunch of actually kind of really useful uh, bits of advice in there. And one of the most useful things in there is he actually he actually shows you a whole bunch of example contracts and statements of work, and and he really shows you how you can win really big contracts and really big clients with with one page with with, with a kind of one page document that says this is the work, this is the price sign here. 
And that was just, I, I, so I, I try and follow that where I can. And so I have this kind of standard contract and I attach an SOW statement of work at the end, which is just one page. And I try and keep that as, 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 as stupidly simple as possible. And, and that's kind of been, that's really that, 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 that one two punch has worked really well for me over the years. Uh, that said, <clears throat> I'd say probably at least half clients, uh, half the time, clients have their own contracts they want me to use, and so and so I'll just use theirs because um, it sidesteps a bunch of a bunch of lawyering back and forth, um, mm. which I don't think anyone's got time for. So, uh, yeah, are there, are there certain things that you have started to do before you started work that maybe you weren't as strict about, bef- like in the early days, you know, such as I don't know payment terms making sure that you're set up to get through the business systems before you start work because sometimes you might work with a client who doesn't even know their own business systems because sometimes right. it's quite complicated. I fingers crossed touch wood. I'm lucky that I haven't had any major problems there. And so I think that I still operate a little bit laissez faire in that respect. Um, I think what's one of the things that gives me confidence in that model is that almost all clients that are coming to me are warm referrals. And so I find that when I do business, it's often a little bit personal. The person that I'm, I'm is, is signing my contract and I'm working with is somebody that I've like interacted with, met face to face, probably had coffee with once. Like maybe they've read my blog. Like it, it, it kind of gives a little bit more of a connection and a bit more trust. Dare I say? Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I know plenty of people, plenty of you know, freelancers, consultants, uh, independents who've been stung, even in situations where they thought they were fine. So um, I'm sure it's just a matter of time before I get stung at some point. But I'm, there are no real deliberate practices that I've that I've developed. The, the only thing I'll, I'll say on that thread is is over the last year or two, I've developed a model of trying to start every engagement with a workshop, as in a you know they'll say we have this big problem, we think we have we have all these things we want to work through, we want to hire you, and I'll say okay, well. Um, first things first, let's just get in a room for one or two days and hammer things out. And I'll sell that as a kind of standalone thing first. And it does a couple of things which are really helpful. One is um, it, it kind of gives you an opportunity to anchor your price high. So um, you know it's kind of a, a low overall value in the scheme of things, but a high day rate. So that's kind of a good opportunity to anchor and, and kind of price anchor high. But it's also easy for them to sign off. It's not a huge chunk of work. Um, but when you come out of that, that workshop, you've got two things. One, you have a really good shared understanding with the client of what actually needs to be done. like Not what they think their problems are, but what their problems actually are and how you might actually solve them. But you've also spent a day or two in a room together. And so you have some notion of trust that says, oh, when I send a statement of work that says, I'm going to be in your office two days a week, that's all you need. You don't need an itemized bullet point list of all the things that we're going to cover in, in this contract because we already have some measure of trust and some some shared uh, understanding of what this work is. So that's actually sidestepped a bunch of angst. There's a, there's a, I feel like um, it's a very common pain point for the other independents that I know is feeling like you've got a good fit for client and work and project. And then you get all the way through to that, that statement of work phase and the client just, just keeps demanding more and more specificity, more and more reassurances that we're going to get this and we're going to get it by this date and we're going to work on these things and we're going to get these outputs. And so many of those things might not be right. They might be, um, you know, when you get into the work, they might turn out to change. And that can be really confusing and hard to deal with. And so I've, I've, I feel like I've managed to, to sidestep that a lot of the time by having this kind of pre-work, this pre-workshop and then, and then moving into a much more less, a much, uh, much less defined uh, kind of scope of ongoing work. Um, mm. That 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 models work for me. 
Right. Have you ever experienced bumps where that client that you've built a relationship with, you've agreed with, you've signed some piece of paper with, then hands you to either HR or procurement or, or some other part of the company that then issues you paperwork like freelance contract, a contract that says they own every single thing that you do and have ever thought of and you have to take full responsibility for anything that you'd say to them and then timesheets and things like that and have to, have to kind of stand your ground and remind them of what was actually agreed? I'd say mostly no. Um, I, I, you know, I've had a little bit of that once or twice where I've had to kind of push back on a few things or just gently remind them that either it's not relevant or it's not applicable to what we agreed or the kind of work that I'm doing. But I've been lucky enough to, like I don't think the word procurement has come through my inbox in a long time, which um, fingers crossed touch wood. Um, it doesn't mm-hmm. <laughs> for a long time. You know, I think so, so an interesting wrinkle with the kind of work that I do is um, I'm working often with companies that are, that are a little bit smaller maybe than you might be familiar with, especially in the kind of ad agency, creative agency world. I'm often working with clients that are like 50 to 100, $200 million in revenue. And those kind of science clients are just a little bit smaller than the kind of the the um, CPG brands and big holding companies and um, you know the kind of people that are buying TV ads are usually not the kind of people that I'm working with. I'm usually working with those people just just kind of a little bit earlier or a little bit smaller than that. And so most of my clients don't have you know super robust quote unquote procurement departments or um, if they have I've been lucky enough to be kind of shielded from them so that I think has been has worked in my favor is the kind of the kind of size of client that I work with tends to tends to help shape that okay now for somebody who's thinking about going independent how would you advise them to spend the next 30 days you know is it something that you can be quite constructive about or do you just need to go independent get your business structure in place network and just fingers crossed hope it works out what would you do so i wrote a blog post called strange attraction which outlines how i get work and i'd 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 point people to go read that and then i'd say spend the 30 days almost almost religiously putting a public presence out in the world and trying to grow your circle of audience um whatever that means whatever that is relevant for you whether that is starting a meetup um, and inviting people out to, to kind of gather that are in your industry, whether it's starting an email newsletter, whether it's starting a blog, whatever you feel comfortable with, there is a... I don't think the, the human brain is not very well suited to understand the, the scale of the internet. And I think that building an audience and building your own network is a thing which is incredibly easy and cost-efficient, but has outsized returns, almost has compound interest of putting stuff out in the world and seeing stuff come back to you. So that would be kind of like the, that's the mental model that I would go with is you, you need a network um, to, to stand on your own two feet and to feel like you can generate leads in any kind of predictable or consistent pattern. So you've got to start building that early and you've got to start building it uh, you know, before you take the leap. The flip side to that is I don't think, you know, when people hear the word networking and blogging and email lists and so on, and I think people, I think people feel like they have to be all I don't know if this is the right phrase. They have to be all fast company about it. Um, they have to be all kind of like the kind of advice you read in Forbes. This kind of like 10 ways to do this, like, um, you know, secrets to success and all of this kind of like crappy magazine content. And I think that the stuff that works best, or at least the stuff that works best for me, is just a much more kind of human and personal and quirky and weird approach to content. You know, just go find your people and be yourself. And don't worry about saying things in the way that the rest of the industry talks about it or saying things in a quote-unquote professional manner. Treat it a bit more like an art project. I know that you've, 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 you've done this a ton, Mark, and you've, you've talked about this as well. But, but that idea of just kind of you know, fly, a, fly a flag. Like I think 
if you're going to be independent, you should lean into the fact that you're independent and you, you don't need to do the things that corporates do and you don't need to, do, you don't need to act like an organization or, or a corporation. So just try and try and be yourself a bit more, you know, post, post things that are a bit more raw or a bit more unpolished. You know, I think that's where, that's where the good stuff happens. And that's what people respond to. You know, at the end of the day, business is personal. It's, it's individual people that are going to hire you to do work. So try and make a connection with those people. Try and, try and, you know, try and write something or post something or record a video or a podcast or an email that, that makes them chuckle or makes them sad or makes them happy or makes them, <laughs> make them shocked. Um, whatever it is, you know, you want, you want a reaction. Um, you don't want, you don't want the kind of sameless sea of content that you see on medium and Forbes and fast company and all these other places that mm. it's just going to fade away in their feed. You gotta, you gotta stand out. Yes, I agree with that. I, I think it's very useful to think of the work that you do as an independent, even if it has a business context, as being some kind of art. That could be a distracting idea for some or a nonsensical idea for some. And you know, one of the questions I ask myself is, how can I be more artistic with this? And it's not that that has to happen every day, but every project that comes in, I'm like, what's the risk that I could take? How do I make this more artistic or and or more in line with how I feel the world? So I, that's kind of the privilege and responsibility of that independent life. Tom, where can people find you on the internet and also where can they find your book as you write about it? Pretty much everything happens on uh, tomchrishlow.com. It's my website. It's got a blog. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of section for strategy writing on there that has all my, all my book chapters and writings as they, as they emerge. And then uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So at Tom Crishlow on Twitter. And my email address is on my website. Anyone wants to chat, I'm open. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for joining me on Sweathead today, Tom. Best wishes with the book, best wishes with that independent life, and I'll no doubt see you in the flesh sometime soon. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Peace.